0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: The information you hear in this podcast is for your education and entertainment purposes only. The ABC accepts no responsibility for improvements in your performance at work, advancement in your career, better relationships with your colleagues, or simply being a whole lot happier at work. Listen at your own risk, but share with your friends.
2: Hey, Tickle. Yeah? Hey, it's time to announce the winner of the Business Buzzword Bingo for This Working Life. So, who was our winner? Um, there isn't one. What? What happened? (laughs) We failed. (gasps) Not a single entry. Not one. Not even my mother. (laughs) Hashtag epic fail. Well, you know, as we like to say, the obstacle is the way, mate.
1: Yes, master. But... (laughs) Lisa, I've learned from it. We made it too difficult. There were too many hoops for them to jump through. There was no prize, so there was no incentive, and we won't do that again.
2: Oh. Hey, how fascinating is failure, by the totally, way? Totally, I reckon we should do a whole episode on it. What do you reckon? Yeah, OK, off you go. <laughs> So fresh off the back of our bingo fail, this episode we're talking about what happens to us when we fail and why it might actually be a good thing for us to fail. Joining me now is Dr. Rachel Sharman. She's a researcher and senior lecturer in psychology at the University of the Sunshine Coast. G'day, Rachel. How are you going? Well, I'm a bit raw, actually. (laughs) Can we talk about the word fail? Because it really does have negative connotations for many of us, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, look, it really does. And it's such a shame because uh, one of the things that we've lost in, I suppose, our understanding of failure is that the fact that it's actually a learning opportunity and your grab there really demonstrated that, okay, this is what we did wrong This is and this is what we need to not do next time or this is how we need to change it up. So, even though everyone felt really bummed about the whole thing. Actually, you've learned something from it and hopefully next time you can do better. So, it, it is a shame it's such a negative word because at the end of the day, it's an opportunity to improve yourself.
2: And what's the difference then between the word fail and the word mistake?
1: Oh, well, he who never made a mistake never made a discovery, I think the old saying goes. So, <laughs> 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 Again, it's, it's a learning opportunity. So, look, I suppose um, a mistake is often something accidental or something unforeseen. That tends to be how we think about it in our language, whereas a failure is something that you you really did want to achieve you and you tried and you put everything into it and, uh, oops, <laughs> it didn't work. So, a failure has got to, I suppose, a little bit, it's a bit more personal, isn't it, and it's a bit harder to kind of take that, oops, we, we really tried really, really hard and we did our absolute level best and we still came up short, and it's a bit hard for people to take that.
2: And it's hard for people to take that usually because we become intertwined in the failure. It's a bit of an identity thing, isn't it? I failed. So, what do we do about that?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Funnily enough, there's language experts who point out that the Western language or English, sorry, is is very uh, what we call agentic. So, it's always me. I failed. I broke my arm. I mean, think about that. I broke my arm. (laughs) Did you? That sounds like a really weird thing to do. So, the, (laughs) the way we, yeah, the way we talk in English, it does always come back to us. We're, we're quite self-absorbed in the West compared to other cultures. Oh, no, we really are. We're intensely narcissistic compared to other right. uh, other cultures. And our language, even the way we speak, reflects that. So, yes, you're quite right. When we have a failure, we personalise it and we we feel bad about ourselves and we think it's all down to us and because we're convinced that we are the captains of our life and the masters of our soul and all that sort of stuff, whereas other cultures don't see it that way at all. They're much more, I suppose, on. On themselves when it comes to these sorts of things, and, and a lot more matter of fact than we tend to be in the West.
2: So, what would you advise that we do instead then? <laughs>
1: Look, as I said, failure is a learning opportunity and it's a beauty. So, when you fail, you have to figure out what you did wrong. So, that, that's not easy. You've got to actually really do a bit of an inventory and find out where did I go wrong? How did I stuff this up? And then you've got to figure out what you're going to do next time. So, presumably, you're not going to run away from the challenge and sort of just leave the room screaming. We want you to actually reapproach the task or, or give it another shot. So, how are you going to do that next time? And then the third thing that often gets lost and we've alluded to here is you have to engage in a bit of emotional regulation because it does hurt and you do feel bad about yourself and it is a bit of a knock to the self-esteem for a lot of people. So actually figuring out how to regulate our emotions and talk to ourselves in a more positive way and and not sort of be so down on ourselves, is also a very important part of learning from failure.
2: And just to frame this a bit, you say that when things go wrong for us, we do cope in different ways and you have three of the most common ways we react Mm -hmm. to failure. What are these
1: three things? Yeah, so and and they're very, very different. So the first one, and we know that successful people do this all the time, is what we call problem-focused coping. So very simple, you actually approach the problem. So rather than personalising it, it, you you see it, as I said, as a learning opportunity, whatever the issue is. So if we look at your bingo example. (laughs) you've set up well, something that you thought was awesome. Sadly, yes. no one agreed with you. Um,
2: so, well, they so, probably <laughs> did. They just didn't uh, uh, enter our competition.
1: Well, okay. So, now <laughs> you, and good? Ra- well, you and Maria have to sit around and sort of figure <laughs> out why that was. What, what was the problem? Um, and, and your colleague already came up with a few ideas, which is absolutely fantastic. So, you've got to then change. So, when you run the competition again, you actually have to change those parameters or you have to do something different get rid of the barriers that stop people from entering what you know whatever it is you figure out you've done wrong and and move on from that and then the pair of you have to sort of feel good about that but That's trying to solve the problem. So the problem is you have a competition. You want people to enter it. How can we solve this problem, right? Yeah. The the second way of coping is what we call cognitive-focused coping. So that's where you change your mind about what happened. So this is more of a, oh, well, I didn't want to do the silly competition anyway. It's just it was a really dumb idea. Let's just forget it. (laughs) (laughs) What that does is it makes you feel better, but it doesn't actually solve the problem and you haven't actually learned anything. So, that's why my first example of how to cope with a problem-focused approach is is much uh, superior. The third way of coping is really bad. It's what we call emotion-focused coping. So, I said before, you need to regulate your emotions. So, what people will try and do is just get rid of the emotion that's associated with failure. So, they'll do that by drinking alcohol, eating a tub of ice cream, whatever they can do to stuff down that bad feeling. So we look at people when they fail and we look at their general coping style and we see whether, do they actually just turn around and try and solve the problem? Do they actually try and sort of talk to themselves into a different frame of mind about their failure or do they actually just try and deal with their emotions and stuff them down? And in in that order, you've got positive right down to a very, very bad negative way of dealing with failure.
2: And so. All of them might come up for you at a certain time. So what sort of is the process then? If if the first thing that happens is I'm feeling emotional, I'm about to reach over to that tub of ice cream, what do I do?
1: Okay. What's the problem? Yeah, seriously, what is the problem? And you've got to confront it. You've got to face it. You can Look, you can drink uh, a, a bottle of wine or, or have a tub of ice cream, but you know what? Tomorrow, you're still going to have the same problem. You're just going to be a kilo heavier. So, seriously, you've got to really Stop yourself from doing that and go, hang on a minute, what is the actual problem? What can I do to solve it? And there's a range of different things you can do to try and solve whatever the issue is. I mean, you could Mm -hmm. phone a friend, you could ask for advice, you could jump on the internet and have a look at possible solutions. You know, actually figure out what the problem is and go after solving the problem. Don't just try and make yourself feel better because it will be temporary. You will have a self-soothing moment, but the following day, you're still facing exactly the same issues. You haven't helped yourself at all.
2: And on that point, it does feel like sometimes it is hardwired into us to react in that way. What's your response to that? Will we all sort of react in that way to failure?
1: Yeah, look, I think, I I don't know if I'd say hardwired. I think a lot of it is modelled, actually. And I think a lot of it, this is something you can blame your parents about. This is very unusually Freudian for me. I don't usually like Freud, but (laughs) let's blame mum, shall we? Um, (laughs) Seriously, how were you raised? Um, When you failed, what was the response from your caregivers or your family or your schooling and, and all that sort of thing? So, this is a learned, modeled behavior uh, for for a lot of people. There are some personality differences. We do know that you're right. Some people are a little bit more wired towards, say, just treating everything as a problem and being very focused on that. Other people are a little bit more wired to sort of, you know, having a, a very strong emotional reaction. But look, Anyone can learn a much better way of dealing with failure and much better coping strategies. They're not that difficult. For a lot of people, it is just undoing bad habits. You know, all your life, whenever you've failed, you've burst into tears and dissolved into a puddle on the floor. What can we suggest you do otherwise that will actually be a bit more helpful for you?
2: Okay, so I'm thinking about the reality of a workplace and, you know, if I met someone who was really very good with failure but was just failing all the time, I don't know how well I would react to that. So what would you say about safety in the workplace to fast fail? (laughs)
1: Okay. So, failing all the time. So, repeated pattern of failure. Okay. This is a tough one. This is where you've got to get honest with yourself. Maybe you're not very good at this task. (laughs) It does come to a point where you are flogging a dead horse. You know, it's great to be approach motivated. It's great to be problem focused. It's great to get up off the mat and have another go and and give it your best shot and uh, do it all over again and and Mm. try and learn from previous failures. That's all good. But if you just keep failing at the same task over and over over and over and over again, look, we all have strengths and weaknesses. (laughs) We we can't be blind to this. There just might be something that's just not for you. And you might need to move on from that task or delegate it and actually play to your strengths instead of consistently trying to bolster up a weakness that at the end of the day, you you aren't actually hardwired to be able to do this particularly well. Be honest with yourself.
2: How will we know the difference
1: that's look it's a good question. There's no there's no sort of mathematical arbitrary measure I can give you on that. I think if you've sort of been trying at something and you've really exhausted all avenues, you know, you've gone and gotten extra training, you've spoken to friends and supervisors, you've done your best to upskill in a particular area and it's just not working probably after say a period of 6 months, you've probably exhausted your capability there time to <laughs> time to have a bit of honest self-reflection and move on I think.
2: I don't know how important context is there as well because I was thinking of examples of perhaps a surgeon or even um, you know a lawyer where you don't really want a fail there um, because somebody might die or you know that contract might go really badly and you might lose a lot of money. So what do we do with that and failure? <laughs>
1: Yeah, look, you're right. I mean, there are some professions where failure is, you know, does have really drastic consequences, but it's a bit of a nonsense to suggest that they're never going to fail. This is what training is about. This is why you have internships. This is why you, you have supervisors uh, you, when you're first starting out, either as a, a lawyer or a doctor, who sort of manically check absolutely everything you do, and, and as well they should because, as you say, the, the consequence there is really problematic. So if you're working in a job... Where where failure has drastic consequences, you actually do need a really good system and organisational culture and a system to make sure that failure is picked up immediately by someone else. So, it's unreasonable to expect that people will never fail. That's just silly and it's it's delusional. So, what you need is a really good system of either supervision or some kind of safety net to make sure that when people fail, it's picked up immediately. And I think, you know, hospitals and, and doctors in particular have come a long way over the, the last sort of 20 odd years. Once upon a time, they had a very hierarchical military, the consultants always right kind of attitude. And in fact, they've moved away from that uh, in, in the last couple of decades to say, no, we actually need to have. Systems in place that if a nurse or someone raises a concern, it's taken seriously in the moment and it's dealt with straight away.
2: So with all this in mind, what should we do if we fail at work? Do we front up to the boss immediately and own up to it?
1: I think you should. I really do. And in fact, I think you'll find a lot of workplaces are really not only just happy, but actually quite (laughs) surprised when people own up to their mistakes. Your mistake could have some downstream consequences that will actually make it a 1000% worse. So, the quicker you get onto it and the quicker you put up your hand and go, oh, look, I'm really sorry about this, but I've stuffed it. Or I've made a mistake in this paper, we need to go back and do it. Or I've I've made a mistake on this evaluation, we need to sort that out straight away. the, The quicker it can be rectified. And like I said, your HR manager, a good manager everyone's human they failed you're going to fail the point is you own it you take responsibility for it you let them know you figured it out and you've learned from it and then you help them solve the problem and that will make you a very valuable employee
2: and if we do all these things we own up we embrace failure what will happen to us (laughs)
1: Probably you'll get promoted, actually. <laughs> tends, to be, tends to be my experience. I was at work a, a couple of years ago and we we had a seminar from some terribly sort of you know important professor and the whole thing. And here we were thinking it was going to be really boring. We were gonna sit there and you know he'd tell us how fabulous he was. Well, he did actually entirely the opposite. He stood up and he said, Oh look, you know how well our, our unit's done, we've made eight million dollars, aren't we? Fabulous. Now, let me talk about how we failed. And everyone kind of sat up in the audience and went, Oh, this is different. <laughs> and he did. He he actually then outlined slide by slide, he had a whole PowerPoint presentation, <laughs> it was just extraordinary, where he failed and what they learned from it. And what was really important about that, for, for more junior academics like myself, it was, okay, so the big wigs do fail, that's refreshing, it's not just me. And also, an actual bit of learning about, look, this organisation wasn't good to work with for these reasons, but then we pitched it wrong, they were actually after this and it you know really taught us to make sure we pitch our projects properly, blah, 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 whatever it was that he learned. And it was actually a terrific learning experience for the entire organization. So, I mean, what a great way to approach something. And and yeah, I mean, everyone knows if you're a success story that you're a success story. Why don't you talk about how you actually got there? And why don't you talk about the road bumps and the speed bumps along the way and how you got over them? That's a much more interesting story for everyone in your workplace.
2: As you said, it is natural to fail and if you haven't
1: failed, you haven't tried. Well, exactly. No risk, no reward. It really is that simple. But more importantly from that, also that you've learned something from that failure and here's what you've learned and you're good enough to pass it on to people at work as well to say, well, here's what I learned when I stuffed up on this.
2: So, what can help us fail better Well, this is where Dr. Paige Williams comes in. She's a lecturer at the Centre for Positive Psychology at Melbourne University and author of the book, Becoming Anti-Fragile, Thriving Through Challenge and Change. Hi, Paige. Hello, Lisa.
0: What does anti-fragile mean? We can think of fragility on a continuum. So, When we're feeling fragile, we might want to play small. We want to keep ourselves safe. We don't feel that we can deal with the level of challenge or change or uncertainty that's going on in the environment. We don't feel we have either the personal resources in terms of our confidence or our motivation or maybe the support from external resources to get through. And so there's a gap. When we feel a bit better about things, we can feel kind of resilient or robust and we can feel, yeah, okay, we can withstand this. I can get through this. My my head's just above the water. Um, And so we are resilient and we're robust in the face of this disruption, challenge and change. But when we're anti-fragile, we move even beyond resilience. So it's not just about bouncing back to where we were before or withstanding what's going on in our context, we actually grow and learn through the experience and we get better from it. Now, that's not to say we enjoy it, that's not to say it doesn't come with a level of discomfort, but being anti-fragile means that there's more of an upside to uncertainty, challenge and change than there is a downside through the growth and learning that we get from the experience. And what does being anti-fragile look like in our work life then, Paige? So it's really interesting. I'm I'm passionate about working with leaders and their understanding of leadership. And one of the first things that I talk about with them around becoming anti-fragile is letting go of the need or the feeling that they have to have all the answers and that they need to be kind of robust and withstand everything. And so, what can be a bit of um, an interesting tension for leaders to hold is that actually becoming anti-fragile involves a level of vulnerability. It involves digging deep for the courage to say, do you know what? I don't have all the answers here and I'm going to draw on the collective wisdom of my team or my peer group or the the community at large to find the best solution to this disruption, challenge and change that we're facing. And so in workplaces, one of the biggest challenges for leaders sometimes in becoming anti-fragile is letting go, letting go of the need to control, letting go of the feeling that they have to have all the answers And because our brains are wired to want to keep us safe, we want to try and control our environments. And leaders can really struggle with that tension of, well, if I let go, doesn't that mean it's all going to go horribly wrong? Well, becoming anti-fragile means that we harness the upside of letting go and actually bringing the collective knowledge of the people that we work alongside and with. So how do we let go? How do we let go? Well, one of the things is to try things, to not take two bigger steps at one time because the guiding principle for our brains is to to keep us safe, but that can keep us playing small. So how is it that we can use that understanding so that we're not fighting physiology? How is it we can use that understanding and put into practice in the workplace small experiments? So I call it the tinkering or sometimes the test and learn mentality where actually what we're doing is going through a learning loop where we try something new. We actually, instead of providing a solution, for example, we ask a question and we look to see what comes out of the space that's created by asking a question rather than providing a solution. And then we assess how did that go, what worked well, what didn't work so well? Where did I struggle? And what am I going to learn for next time? What can I learn forward into the next meeting or the next conversation and, and do something slightly different so that I'm adapting and adjusting, but I'm taking slow steps towards letting go and actually expanding the body of knowledge that comes into making decisions and deciding how we might meet the, the challenges that we're facing as, as a team or as, a, as an organization. I talk about living in the learning loop um, so that we're continually putting these small experiments, this test and learn mentality into practice every day through our leadership and our leadering so that actually we grow our capacity to be okay with failure because as we get used to failing small and becoming okay with failing small, our confidence grows and we can actually get okay with failing slightly bigger and slightly bigger. And that's what helps then accelerate our growth through the uncertainty challenge and change.
2: And Rachel, you look at small amounts of failure as a particular uh, mindset, don't you? What do you call it?
1: Well, it's, it's been called stress inoculation and I love it. It's like a vaccine against bigger failures. It's exactly what Paige is saying. So, you have a series of small failures and as well as, you know, feeling the confidence, hopefully you've actually learned something from them. So, as Paige is saying, you adjust, you adapt. I mean, this is how the human species has evolved by adjusting and adapting to our environment. So, uh, this is definitely a good thing. And so, you build up these little small moments in time where you learn to regulate your emotions but you also take failure as a learning opportunity, you grow from it, and it becomes a form of vaccine against stress for failure later on in life, particularly when you have very big failures. So yeah, it's sometimes referred to as stress inoculation, and I think that's a great term for it.
2: Now, Paige, do you have an example of someone
0: who's done this? successfully? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So, um, I was um, coaching someone as, as this year started and, you know, what a great year this has been to really, really putting to oh. practice becoming anti-fragile, right? <laughs> so, there's been plenty of a very rich kind of experience to work with and this particular client was really a, a rising star in the organisation. It was a, a fast-moving consumer goods organisation and she was responsible for getting the right product on the right shelves in the right countries. So you can imagine as COVID started to, the impact started to roll out, she was under a huge amount of pressure and, and was really feeling it. And as we started to talk about actually kind of letting go and not feeling like she had to have all the answers. And we stripped away some of the stories that she was telling herself because that's the other way the brain tries to keep us safe is um, it it actually kind of creates stories to try and make sense of what's going on. But often these stories that we tell ourselves aren't based in reality. They're based in our ego and that's what's trying to keep us safe. And so over the, the course of about three or four weeks, I introduced her to the learning loop. To the idea of actually, you know, what of what these stories are true? What do we actually know is reality? What do we strip away because that's ego and that's not serving you? And we went through another practice based in stoicism, stoic leadership around, you know, what can you control? What can't you control? What can you influence? How do we take effective action from that basis? And then finally, do you have any further tips on how we can become more anti-fragile? So this idea of stress inoculation that Rachel's brought up and actually think about the question, what can I learn from this and how can I learn forward from this? So that actually as I, as I experience the challenge, as I experience the struggle, how can I be okay with that and actually take something forward from it that will serve me in the future? Thank you to my guests, Dr. Rachel Sharman, psychologist from the University of the Sunshine
2: Coast, and organisational psychologist, Dr. Paige Williams, author of the book, Becoming Anti-Fragile, Thriving Through Challenge and Change. And join us next week for the start of our new four-part series, Performing in a Pandemic. We know that things won't snap back exactly to the way they were, so how do you prepare yourself to adjust to this new way of working? We'll discover how to avoid burnout, what to eat to optimise mental performance, routines and rituals that really work, and tips from productivity experts. Because folks, we're in this for the long haul. This Working Life is produced by Maria Tickle, who won't be retiring to be a bingo caller after all. And thank you to this week's episode producer, Zoe Ferguson. I'm Lisa Leong, and until next week, keep working.